Welcome to Article One, a show about lawmakers, legislating, and the politics that make Congress work. My name is Molly Hooper, a longtime Capitol Hill reporter, and I'm taking you off camera beyond the halls of Congress to hear my one-on-one conversations with Democrats and Republicans in the Senate, the House, and behind the scenes. On today's episode, I talked with Rodney Davis, the Republican lawmaker representing Illinois' 13th district. Since he was elected in 2012, Davis has topped the Democratic campaign arms list of pickup opportunities, but Davis continues to divide the Democrats and wins re-election each campaign cycle. He is the top Republican on the House Administration Committee and explains how the panel will face a key test on January 3rd, opening day of the 117th Congress. Heads up, we spoke in mid-December, the day before lawmakers started to receive COVID vaccines. So keep that in mind when you're listening to the interview. And if you enjoy what you hear, please share Article 1 with a friend or colleague and leave a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts. Now, on to the conversation. Hey, how are you? Good. What's I, up, Molly? I was just... Hang on one second. Okay. Hang, hang on one second. Perfect. Molly, I apologize. I'm in the middle of a... <laughs> you got to turn it over and turn it upside down. It's crazy. Oh, my, I'm... Okay, so I'm... Not as crazy as you. No, I'm watching this Sackler hearing, the opioid hearing. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Kelly Armstrong just went off. I, it, it's already been sort of like this really sad hearing about the opioid crisis and whatnot. And Kelly Armstrong just went off saying, you know, I think that you guys were complicit, essentially. You might seem sad right now, but if one of my clients was found selling five of those pills on the street, they'd get minimum 10 years in jail. And you're sitting, I mean, he just went off. And then he goes, and by the way, we should not be doing these remote hearings. This is a disservice to us and to the people that we represent, because really, in order to get the most out of this hearing, we need our witnesses to be front and center, and we all need to be asking these questions. For some reason, they had terrible technical difficulties at the beginning, and it sort of lets the witnesses off the hook a little bit. Oh, completely. Tell, tell, completely. Me, about, yeah, tell me about your experience with remote completely. hearings. Terrible. I mean, I'll be honest with you, Molly. I've been I've said all along, it's not the way we need to be going. We should be in safely in session. Uh, if, if essential workers can be in our hospitals, like my wife goes to work every day and comes home, mitigates the risk, and then goes back the next day. Why in the world can't Congress do that? Well, what, what do you think is missing? Because I know what I think is missing when Congress is not in front of, and witnesses are not actually physically in front of a full committee. But tell me from your perspective, what is missing without that sort of face-to-face interaction in person? Well, what it does is it, it doesn't allow us to work with some of our colleagues on the other side of the aisle who we could normally interact with on a daily basis to come up with ideas. They can you know, give me ideas that I can take to our committee uh, ranking members and our leadership team and vice versa. And when you don't have that personal interaction, it, it stops and slows down the legislative process. But a lot of the issues you just mentioned are, are really the granular issues of, of a hearing. Right. You know, the, the remote hearing does not allow us as members, especially with technological difficulties, to really make use of what we only get is five minutes anyway. Right. And it could be it could be used up in a matter of, of yeah, it could be used up because of technical difficulties. And your constituents, my constituents, don't get a chance to ask those witnesses the questions that are important to them. Right. But at the 30,000 foot level, 
this is all planned by Speaker Pelosi and Leader Hoyer. They they want Congress to be remote. Why? Because it consolidates power in the leadership suites. And it doesn't allow people like me and my colleagues to give them ideas that they don't want to hear. So if, if say, there was a Speaker McCarthy or a Speaker, a Republican Speaker, do you think they would allow for those remote hearings in similar circumstances? I think we would probably operate in more of the similar fashion that the United States Senate is and has been operating under for months. Okay, I see. And, and tell me from your vantage point as the top Republican on the administration committee, because... Number one, the administration committee, you guys are kind of like the mayors of Capitol Hill, <laughs> right? Sometimes that's good. Sometimes that's bad. Sometimes that's bad. But what is your role and your committee's role in making these remote hearings possible? And more broadly, what is it like for you as the top ranking Republican in dealing with your counterpart, your Democratic counterpart? How do you make these sort of arguments in favor of more in-person hearings with Zoe Lofgren? Well, right now I do it remotely. I haven't seen Zoe in person since March. So ironically, I complain about remote hearings remotely to uh, my colleagues on the committee on, in the majority and also uh, via the media. And it's, it's really frustrating. But in the end, in the end, we're not in charge. And, and one thing that I found, Molly, is that, is that the, this is a really a majority-driven institution. Right. And they're making the decisions to implement remote hearings without sufficiently testing the technology that's being utilized. And hence, we have problem after problem after problem. Um, now they want to, to move into remote voting, not just proxy voting, but remote voting. And I am very concerned that that actually is something that is completely unconstitutional, because I can believe that we should be here, especially now. Right. I mean, we are, we've seen historic vaccine development. We're on the verge of getting out of this pandemic. Why in the world would leadership on the Democratic side want to push us more remotely unless they seriously don't want us back here in the first place? Well, that's the thing that's sort of strange to me, because personally, I if you go back over sort of the summer when just for your reference, I'm a tennis player and I was following world team tennis, for example. And essentially what they did is they had about 50 professional tennis players holed up at the Greenbrier Resort with their coaches and whatnot. They couldn't leave. They were in their own little bubble. And what I haven't understood about Congress is that you guys each have your own little small business in the Cannon, the Longworth or the Rayburn building. Why can't you guys be in a bubble working together and getting a lot of things done in person? You know, other organizations have had to do that. And I mean, really, when you go back to the district, what are you doing given all of these restrictions? Are you able to get out and do the sort of work in person that you've done in the past? Because if you haven't, then my question is, why aren't you back in D.C. all sort of <laughs> huddled up under the bubble and getting stuff done and then going home once everything is finished? Well, you brought up a lot of interesting points <laughs> and a few different questions there. Right. So let me start with the bubble, the bubble theory. Uh -huh. um, when, when bubbles were being utilized at the beginning of this pandemic, we didn't know as much about this disease. Our overall diagnostic testing capacity was limited and antibody testing was limited. And now, we, and at the time we didn't have vaccines being pushed out into, uh, you know, into those who, who are actually taking care of 
of those who are sick with COVID, like we've seen since they've been rolled out a few days ago. So the discussion of a bubble, I think, is less, uh, is less of an issue now than it was a few months ago. But a lot of your suggestions about why can't we be here clearly is through a lack of planning on the speaker's part. I, uh, I sent a letter, uh, Kevin McCarthy, Tom Cole joined me in sending letters asking the speaker months and months ago to begin planning to implement a testing regime here at the Capitol. She didn't do that. And, and that's frustrating because what it did is it, it stopped us from being able to come to Congress, be able to see the testing regime taking place and be able to allow for members, but not just members, but essential staff, members of the media to be able to get tested because the diagnostic test is what is stopping us from having these prolonged 14 day quarantines like we had at the beginning of this pandemic and like we had at the beginning of my infection back in August. So from what you said, you you actually brought up a couple of interesting points as well that I wanted to follow up on. Number one, what is the reticence that Speaker Pelosi is, why isn't she as willing to embrace testing everybody? I know that there's a lot of people who work on Capitol Hill and limited resources, but at the same time, if you're not essential workers, I don't know who is because the people back home, I mean, waiting for stimulus checks or on unemployment or dealing with all this lack of funding at state and local levels, they need Congress to act on something. And if you're not essential, then I don't know what is. And it seems to me having covered Congress a long time, going back to that point that we made in the beginning of this, of our conversation, you really need that in-person engagement. I see people make deals on the floor and have conversations across the aisle, but you do that in person. It's very difficult. I mean, I can barely make this Zoom call work and <laughs> you're one person. Oh. Yeah, my, my, my link didn't work, which is why I had to go in and cut and paste the meeting number and then the password. It would be a lot easier for me to knock on your door and say, hey, Congressman. Yeah, yeah, or see you see me in the hallways like you have in the past. And we sit and we talk about things. That is missing. And, and, and clearly, Speaker Pelosi, even just a, a few weeks ago, she told us why it's missing. She didn't want to pass the stimulus package before the election. She didn't want us to come up with an agreement because she said, in her own words, she wanted to wait for a new president. Now we are on the verge of having Joe Biden sworn in as the next president of the United States in just a few weeks. Now's the time, Speaker, to begin planning for the future. And unless she wants to keep the status quo, which is really has empowered her and her team and her leadership team, if she wants to keep that, then what you will see is a continued lack of planning when it comes to diagnostic testing, antibody testing, and, and, and our new issue, and I sent a letter on this this week, I'm asking her to put together a plan to begin vaccinations. Hey, it's not just members of Congress I'm talking about. I'm talking about the Capitol Police. I'm talking about the folks who work in these buildings every day when she's negotiating on her time frame about what we're going to do for the future of this country. They are still here. They are not getting a plan of action to be vaccinated like every other essential worker in this country. And it's all Speaker Pelosi's fault. I'm sure she'll appreciate that and be very open-minded to considering your suggestion after you call it all her fault. No, I'm kidding. I don't know what else to call it. I, I get no response when I send, no, no, I, I get no response when I send letters. She failed miserably on the testing regime and was finally forced into it just a, about a month and a half ago. 
Now's the time to recognize your failure on the front end there with testing. Why repeat the same thing with vaccinations? Well, well, what is going to be interesting in the next few weeks, there's going to be a lot more Republicans in the House and a lot fewer Democrats. And I'm wondering if that smaller margin of votes for Speaker Pelosi, essentially, will help move some of these issues along that the minority is talking about, because there must be some Democrats, some more moderate Democrats, even progressives who want to get in and get to work on Capitol Hill, who would like things to change a little bit. Are you hearing anything about that or are forming sort of informal coalitions with incoming members and members that you already know to to move through some of these issues that the speaker is just not budging on? The best informal coalition you could have as a member of Congress is friends. Right, your friends. That's right. Friends, friends on, on whatever side of the aisle they are. Right. Because then you work with them to, to, to work on ideas that we mutually agree are good ideas. So those coalitions have been built over the last eight years of my time here in Congress. And I, I'm not going to change how I operated because that's exactly what I tried to do when they had a larger majority or, frankly, when we had the majority. And I can give you some friends' names to talk about how we work together when we were in the majority in the majority to get their priorities put into bills too. Okay, tell me about um, that. Tell me about that. Well, I hope the whole time is I do say time's gonna tell on whether or not the Democrats are in the majority, even the slimmer majority are willing to work with us. And I'm very disappointed that one of the first moves that they seem to be making is to possibly try to unseat. Marionette Miller Meeks, a duly elected member of Congress from the state of Iowa, who won by six votes, possesses an election certificate. And that, what what I'm afraid of, Molly, is going to be the first issue we face on January 3rd uh, come next year. How can that, I'm sorry, notwithstanding the role that Congress and the House does play in accepting its own members and dealing with its own membership, how can that be if Marion Meeks has that six vote lead win certified and such, how can Congress overturn that? How can the House overturn that? And and is that a similar issue that you may face with, is it near 22 with Brindisi versus Tenney? It is. And, and frankly, uh, this is part of the House's duties is to make sure that we have the final say based on the Constitution of who is actually a member of the House we will accept those certificates of election. But if you go back to the election cycle of 1984 and into the next year of 1985, an overwhelming majority of Democrats uh, who had a very large majority at the time in the House, they voted to unseat Rick McIntyre, who had an election certificate as a Republican in Indiana's 8th District, and they voted to reseat Frank McCloskey, an incumbent who was defeated. And they did it on a partisan vote. They did it in the House. And it's a completely partisan process. Rita Hart, who lost the congressional race in the state of Iowa, she had a bipartisan group of election officials sign off on Marionette Miller Meeks' victory Mm -hmm. and give her the certificate of election. She had a step that she could have taken in the state of Iowa to adjudicate any concerns she had. She didn't do that. And in her own words, the only way to get this seat in Congress is to go the political route to come to Congress and ask Nancy Pelosi and the Democrats to unseat Marionette Miller Meeks and and seat somebody who was not elected. It's an offense to the voters of Iowa's 2nd District. Well, but but you also made made an interesting point there as well. Back in the 80s, when the Democrats had an overwhelming majority, 
That's one thing. But with the Democrats having a much slimmer majority, do you think people like Democrats in more conservative districts, moderate districts like an Abigail Spamberger or 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 other Democrats would, would vote that way? Would Elise Slotkin, I mean, wouldn't she be hurt at home if she was seen as, as unseating a Republican member of Congress? Well, we know this process is going to happen. Rita Hardis said she's going to file. Um, we're planning for this fight on January 3rd. But those are questions that you should probably ask those Democratic members. You should ask Cindy Axney, too, who is, possesses the exact same certificate of election from the state of Iowa that Marinette Miller Meeks does. Uh, those, are, those are questions that I think you and other members of the media should begin asking these Democrats who were in tough districts, who have a record of, of bipartisanship. Do they really want to start this Congress off with a precedent? of removing a duly elected Republican, because we will take the majority in 2022. And a question you should ask is, do they really want a partisan process to possibly affect that? That sounds like some Senate arguments going on, a uh, procedure and such. That would be very big. That would be a big deal. And I think that you're right. It will be a very big issue come the beginning of January. And how Speaker Pelosi handles that, I don't know. I don't know if that's necessarily what she wants going into the next Congress. I mean, I get that, that the Democrats do have the majority. It's going to be a slimmer majority. But at the same time, she still has vulnerable members who, from what I understand in my conversations with them, and even more liberal members, are ticked off that their caucus did not do as well as they had anticipated going into the 2020 elections. Sort of like when Newt Gingrich, what was it when he was essentially unseated as speaker? Was it like 1998 when he didn't win as many Republican seats as he had promised? You guys were like, out of here. You're out of here. We're done. I mean, that caused a big issue. And, and the Republicans held on to the majority at that time. So, so I don't know. I think what are you hearing about the speaker vote? Are you hearing that Nancy Pelosi has all her, her votes lined up? Well, taking a step back to what you mentioned about the election, you know, I, I, I hope everyone uses my pollster because I can tell you my pollster was dead on in my race and we ended up winning by a lot higher margin than what, uh, what a lot of prognosticators anticipated. But when you lose every single race against a Republican incumbent that you Speaker Pelosi and BCCC Chair Sherry Bustos were crowing about winning on election morning. You got an institutional problem with your political arm. And, you know, I don't think Nancy Pelosi will lose her speakership. I think she will somehow figure out a way to get just enough votes. And it looks like the only person who will pay a price for, uh, for the failures of of not electing more Democrats is Sherry Bustos, who lost her DCCC job. Right. That was, I mean, fellow Illinois in the Illinois delegation. And actually, on that note, let me ask you about the Illinois delegation, because I, I have some issue. I have questions related to, you know, Congress as an institution, but also questions about your district, which incidentally, Landa Lincoln, the birthplace, isn't it where Lincoln lives currently? He does. Your district? He resides yes, in his tomb. Mm hmm. He resides in your district, honest Abe. Got to make sure you didn't vote. <laughs> That's right. That's right. You do. Got to go back and check those rolls. But the Illinois delegation, you guys have a very diverse bunch of 
legislators, including your senators. How well do you guys interact? Do you have weekly meetings like some of the delegations do, or do you interact at all? No, we interact, uh, but we don't have weekly meetings. Uh, Senator Durbin is one of the most politically oriented uh, folks that I've ever worked with. Uh, He and I, uh, we don't see eye to eye on a lot of things politically, and unfortunately, it affects any personal relationship we can have. Um, and that's unfortunate, but uh, he uh, he's made his feelings perfectly clear that he never wants to be my constituent. And he's been stuck being my constituent for now eight years and, and another two. Uh, but we have great relationships with Senator Duckworth and also, you know, members of both sides of the aisle here in Illinois. Um, I will tell you, uh, you know, it made it more difficult to have relationships with, uh, you know, my colleague, Ms. Bustos, when her goal is to to unseat Republicans. And she stated uh, publicly her, her top target in the nation was me. And um, what she also didn't realize was my top target in the nation was her. And we, we've got a great candidate, Esther Joy King, and I'm going to do everything I can to make sure Esther runs again and wins this next time because she would make a great member of Congress. But even with the politics aside, it doesn't stop us from working together to get things done. We've done that, but I'm at least honest with you, Molly, that yeah, there's political tension in a job like this. It happens. And you know, when people try to take you out, they're not on your they're not first on your invite list to a party. Man, I could for a long time I wanted to go into politics. I wanted to run for office to be a member of the House, actually, because I thought it was a great institution. But I don't know if it is. It is. Well, I do. And I love covering it. This is a way to be a part of it without having to be of it. But I just can't imagine being able to compartmentalize on the one hand, having to work with this colleague who, you know, we need to get something done for our state of Illinois. On the other hand, knowing that this person (laughs) was running negative ads about me in my district, I just would have a very difficult time reconciling or handling that. And, you know, I think that you have an interesting perspective because not only are you, have you been a member of Congress for a number of years since 2012 now, right? Yep. But you, you were actually, you worked for Mr. Shimkus for a long time before that. So you were on staff and you were actually at the district level doing the outreach and constituent services. That that is correct. And as a matter of fact, um, you know, I'm going to miss him being around here. Uh, John was a great friend and a great mentor and somebody I could go to when I got here and know that I was going to get unfiltered good advice. Um, I, I will miss that. But as he tells me, now that I've been here uh, four terms and into my fifth, that he, he, I, I don't need his advice as much anymore. Uh, but I am so proud of him. And he, uh, one of the most touching moments I've had in my entire career is when he told me he was proud of me as a member of Congress. So I'm going to miss him. But, you know, he taught me a lot about this institution. He taught me to appreciate being a member of the House. And he taught me, too, that you can put politics aside and you can get things done. But don't get me wrong. You don't forget it. And unfortunately, you know, as somebody like me who I came in uh, winning a very tough election, the next election, uh, you know, we made a lot of friends on the other side of the aisle. We got things done. Uh, you, you have folks who are, who are brand new. They don't want to play politics. And then all of a sudden they serve a little bit longer. They start to, to play in your race. They start to play politics a little more. I get that. And especially when I, I, I come off a, a, a two targeted races, you know, you get to really find out who your true friends are or just your legislative friends. 
And what I do then is now I become more engaged politically because of the, the mass amount of Democrats who engage against me. It just makes me want to, to, to work that much harder to get back into the majority. Now, there are still friends that I will never donate against, that I will never work against, but those are fewer and far between after seeing the list of those who uh, decided not to do that with me this past time and the time before. What does your family think about that after they've come to Washington and they've met your friends and whatnot and then find out your friends are running all these things against you, all these ads against you? What's that like from their perspective? Do, have, do you ever talk about that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we talk about that. I mean, that's that's family communication. Um, I, I, uh, I'd i love to be a bird on the wall the first time she runs into to, uh, Sherry Bustos. So, uh, um, but, you know, it's, she's my biggest protector. She's my wife. And I'm her biggest protector as her husband. Uh, It frustrates her to see people say bad things about me. So she gets a lot more angry than I do because look, I'm in it. I'm in politics. I get it. But for somebody who's not, even though she is, she has known nothing but politics since we've been married. um, You know, it is frustrating. The kids are much better at compartmentalizing than I think spouses are because spouses take it so much more personal. My kids will laugh about it. They'll be like, Oh dad, saw a really nasty commercial about you today. Uh, How are you going to do that? How are you going to respond to that one? Right. And then when you guys are in a fight, they'll be like, well, to quote your rival dad. Well, back in my first race, I came home and my kids were doing something stupid. They were young boys. They're 20 now. So are they 12 back then? Uh Um, They, um, they were doing something wrong. I said, hey, guys, don't do that. And they looked at each other and looked at me. And they said, started laughing. They said, we don't have to listen to you anymore, Dad. I'm like, what? They said, yeah, because the TV right there told us you're wrong for America. So how can you be right for us? That's pretty good. That's funny. Tell me a bit about your district. I know that, you know, obviously, Land of Lincoln. But tell me about the people, your constituents, and what kind of constituent services you provide for your district? What calls do you get in your offices? Well, right now, it's a lot of calls about unemployment uh, benefits that should be administered by the state of Illinois. And people are frustrated. Either somebody's fraudulently applied for benefits, like somebody just did with me uh, a a few weeks ago or a few days ago. I I, I don't know. I don't know how long it's been because I, 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 I can't get a call back from the Illinois Department of Employment Security. Um, but that's frustrating most of my constituents. It's how are they getting access to the answers they need or the help they need because of this pandemic? And I just want answers. And I'd really like our governor to, to really do what, you know, what we've seen happen in other states, put every single possible state worker you have on a mission to get through the backlog of fraud claims and unemployment benefit claims. That should be an easy solution that our governor has yet to do. Why is that? And, and what, what kind of relationship does your office have with the governor's office? And I'm from Illinois. And Illinois Democrats like to play politics. Oh, yes. So uh, they've clearly shown that um, you know, a lot of decisions being made uh, and working with me and my office were going to be based upon whether or not they thought it could help me in the last election. Um, those are... I mean, I'm not going to burst your bubble or anyone else's. Yes, those things happen. Go talk to the members of certain certain Illinois delegation staff, and you can actually, if they're honest with you, they will tell you that. 
So I don't have as much of a relationship with Governor Pritzker's team as I would have hoped and as I would have liked. One of the first times I saw Governor Pritzker in uh, Senator Durbin's office, I was a I was uh, over there to congratulate him. And I just served four years with a Republican governor who lived in the mansion that's in my district. And I said to Governor Pritzker, you know how many times I was at the governor's mansion the last four years? And he said, I bet zero. I said, you're right. He said, well, let's fix that. We picked up the phone the next few days, tried to call and arrange that. Crickets. That's what we deal with in Illinois Democratic politics, unfortunately. That's wild. I mean, that's... Doesn't stop us from throwing suggestions out there and trying to get things done. And unfortunately, a lot of times we need to go to the media to get it done because the agency doesn't act. And and that's that's a direct responsibility of Governor Pritzker to fix. Well, well, how many of the problems that your constituents are calling you about can be handled via federal agencies as well? Uh, Social security issues, um, uh, tax-related issues, EIP payments. And, uh, have you been getting those calls as well? Veterans benefits. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, we, we always have VA issues. I mean, it's always one of our highest caseloads. Remember, I worked in the district office for John Shimkin. So a lot of these case cases I, I dealt with, you know, be it immigration, naturalization, uh, Social Security, Medicare, VA, uh, those are the things that we continue to work with the administration on and continue to advocate on behalf of our constituents. And I got a great constituent service team that I keep getting uh, wonderful kudos uh, from my constituents about. And it makes me proud because I used to be them. And, and uh, I know I hire people who do a better job than what I did. So I actually, one of the things that I noticed is it's sort of like the, the kudos, as you said, from, from some of your, your, uh, your constituents calling out members of your staff by name. I noticed that Abigail Spamberger has something very similar on her website. And she said, you know, and you, and Ted Yoho and I were talking about this as well. They said, you know, people, constituents of ours who are in different political parties, people who voted for different members of Congress, they're always surprised when we are able to come through and and, get, and help them navigate the VA or get that benefit from Social Security that was missing or fix this problem. And, and I noticed that sort of when I talked to members with robust constituent service, um, constituent service offices in the district, members in tight, who you would think tight races tend to do it's not surprising to me that they are doing better in their races because they have constituents that they are in touch with and have actually, you know, impacted their lives. I'm wondering, do you have any stories like that? Oh, absolutely. I have stories of being a staffer, you know, democratic mayors that I worked with to help bring projects to their community, you know, would call me when I became a candidate in 2012 and say, Hey, I'm with you. (laughs) I'm a Democrat. You know that, but you, you helped me, you helped my community. And I won by a thousand and two votes. And, those relationships matter. Right. You know, it's the same relationships that I've tried to build here in Congress. Uh, friends like Jimmy Panetta, uh, who, you know, and Dave Loebsack, retired, retiring member from the state of Iowa. Uh, these folks I worked with to put their priorities as my priorities when we were in the majority to get their ideas into place and then share, share the victory with them. Uh, Scott Peters, Scott and I worked together on on creating a student loan repayment program that employers are incentivized to use to help employees pay down student debt tax-free, just like they can for the levels uh, that they, they have for tuition reimbursement. That's now law. So good ideas 
allow you to make great friendships. And, and then the key point is, it's just like with constituent service success, is to share it with that staff or who, who made the effort, who did the work. Right. Uh, and then also, when you have success in getting legislation passed, when you're in the majority or the minority, share it with your colleague on or colleagues on both sides of the aisle who helped you. Right. And, and that, to me, is what allows you to break through the partisan politics. What, what, would, what would you say is your greatest legislative accomplishment related to your district so far? Uh, specifically to my district, number one, the student loan issue I just talked about. I have, I have uh, four public universities, four private colleges and universities, and I also have um, you know, eight community college districts that I touch. Student debt is a major issue in my district. That is an issue that I said I was going to address when I first ran for Congress. We got it done. You couple that with two farm bills. We got transportation and infrastructure bills related to water infrastructure, air, rail, highway infrastructure passed in my time in Congress. I said when I ran for this office, my job would be to get those bills, both for our ag sector and our transportation sector, back on track. My first major bill that I passed is a Hire More Heroes Act. It incentivized small businesses to more veterans. Right. And it, it, it changed Obamacare. Remember back when they said we could never change Obamacare? Well, we did it. And we did it in a bipartisan way. Okay. And finally, what's your take on earmarks? Are they good? Are they bad? If they come back, are you for it or against it? Yeah, if they're, I, I think, unfortunately, we give a lot more power to faceless bureaucrats in the executive branch than we should. Um, I can drive you around the district that John Shimkus used to represent and show you the projects that started with congressional directed spending. Let's make it transparent. Let's make sure that let's make sure that it, it doesn't cost any more than what would have been given anyway. But let's give our constituents a voice, put some parameters in place so that everybody knows which projects you're advocating for. Do it for your communities, your government entities, and, and you will see the progress. And unfortunately, uh, we haven't seen that, and the executive branch has way too much control. Okay, I'll let you go. Thank you so much. Gotta go. This has been wonderful. Yeah. I really appreciate it. That was Rodney Davis of Illinois' 13th District. Vaccine update on Capitol Hill. Since our interview, the Capitol physician has approved vaccination for at least two staffers in each congressional office. A big thank you to Aaron DeGroot for setting up the interview. And thank you for listening. Tony Mitri is our editor. Julian Soler is our producer. For any questions, comments, and suggestions, please message me on Twitter at Molly Hooper or at Article One Podcast. Or you can email me, molly at article1podcast.com. On the next episode, I go behind the scenes to talk with a former Democratic committee staffer to get down and dirty with trade issues in the next Congress under a new administration. But until then, I reserve the right to revise and extend my remarks. <laughs>